Welcome to the graphic audio behind the mic podcast. These podcasts will feature author interviews and behind the scenes interviews with our cast, directors, and crew. Today's podcast features director Colleen Delaney's interview with author Laura Resnick as they talk about the Esther Diamond series, a new supernatural mystery series that we now produce in graphic audio. This is Colleen Delaney, the director of the Esther Diamond series at Graphic Audio, and Laura Resnick, the series author, and I recently had a conversation. She has written, in addition to the Esther Diamond series, over a dozen other books, essays, short stories, as well as screen fiction. She's won the Campbell Award for Best Writer, and she was a finalist for the Rita Award. She won the Romantic Times Magazine Award three times. Laura Resnick is smart. She is funny. And we are so privileged and so excited to be partnering with her to make really entertaining graphic audio for you, the listeners, to enjoy. Uh, Here is our conversation. I know you will find it interesting and illuminating. And I'm just so grateful to Laura for taking the time to chat with me. Here we go. Hey, Laura. Yeah. It's Colleen DeLeon. Hello. Well, your voice is very familiar now. I got the uh, CDs yesterday and have been listening. I'm really enjoying it. It's wonderful. I, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen when your work is adapted, but uh, I just think it's terrific. You guys are doing a great job. Oh, what a pleasure to hear that. That's so great. Thank you. So how's production going on book three? It's going great. Let's see. I am um, almost done recording actors. I am almost done recording narration. So production for book two and book three is going on at the same time. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the engineer, sound designer, has been sending me disc by disc sides to listen and make adjustments to. And so he continues his work on the tail end of book two. And I am rounding third on book three and getting things stitched up tidily for him to begin his work. And then, and then onward. And then, I'll, and then I'll get to start now. I, I think the next is... Uh, Vampirazzi, which now, is that still your favorite in the series? Because I, I read in one of your interviews that you had a soft spot in your heart for that one. Yeah, I do. Generally, I always say my favorite book was, which always, is always whichever one I've most recently completed. Yeah. Like, you hate a book the whole time you're working on it. So whatever I'm working on at the time is the book I hate most and just think, I'm going to have to give the money back. This one will never work. And whichever one I like best is the one where I kept thinking that until about a day after I wrote it and went, oh, that wasn't so bad. Now I become really fond of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it changes, you know, month to month, year to year, what my favorite is. But I do have a soft spot for Vampirazzi. That was just a lot of fun, so... Cool. So I hope you guys have fun working on it. Please convey to the actors and the sound designers and everything how pleased I am, because I've actually kind of, while listening to it, sometimes forget that I wrote the book. I'm just like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that lady really knew what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm enjoying it tremendously. It's uh, me, especially being like a huge fan of radio plays, and this is sort of the best combination of an audio book and a radio play combined in a way. Nice. Yeah. And it's really, yeah, it's just lots of fun, and there are places where like they're all bickering, and I, I actually laugh, like, ha ha, that was so clever. Oh, wait, I wrote that. <laughs> it sounds cleverer when they do it. <laughs> nice. And and I and I read also that you're you're a, a fan of Hercule Poirot. Hercule. 
Yeah, I've uh, come to Agatha Christie late in life. I was not a fan when I was younger, but I picked up one of the books about three years ago and loved it. So I've um, I've since been kind of, I made it a project to read all of her books, and I guess I'm about halfway through. So yes, I'm a big fan of Hercule Poirot. I just, uh, I just did a short story, actually, with, um, it was a science fiction short story for Galaxy's Edge, and um, there's a robot named Achille Picant, who is a detective robot uh, sent by military intelligence to investigate. It was tons of fun. So I, my personal tribute to Christie. Do you have a favorite uh, portrayal of Poirot in the like the films or the uh, radio or? Well, I think like most people, I really really like um, David Suchet's portrayal. Yeah. I saw um, oh what was it the 1970s movie with Albert Finney portraying Poirot, and there he just seems like a circus freak. I thought it, it really didn't do a lot for me, but uh, on TV I, I really like David Suchet's portrayal. And in the BBC radio plays, he's played by John Moffat, who does a really good job. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the audiobooks, I listen to a lot of Christian audio, the audiobooks are read by sometimes John Moffat and sometimes by Hugh Fraser, who plays Colonel Hastings in the TV show. And they're both really good readers. You, it's the sort of thing where it's just one reader and no sound effects, but as you're listening along, you forget it's just one actor. They really make you think there's a whole cast of people in yeah. that booth with them. Yeah. So they're really... Uh, great to listen to. How long have you been working for Graphic Audio? Well, as a director for about five years, and mm-hmm. as a voice actor, well, certainly as long as there's been a Graphic Audio, and before then, the mm-hmm. the company and the product has evolved over the years. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as many as uh, maybe sixteen or seventeen years ago, I was I was narrating abridged romances for mm-hmm. um, the company, and that was sort of how I cut my teeth as a narrator and and that was a lot of fun and then um you know the product with the f- the the full production grew and mm-hmm. um and so I was a voice actor for them for uh, a good number of years before coming on as a director mm-hmm. so. I started out as a romance writer and most of my friends are romance writers in the business so you probably did uh, books or adaptations by some of my friends over the years oh, when you were doing I bet that you. I bet you there are very mm. few degrees of separation between us <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wrote uh, about 14 romance novels as Laura Leone uh, none of which were ever audio so you didn't, definitely didn't do mine um, then I wound up switching over to fantasy mm. but um, mm. and, and um, just having started out in romance that was sort of where I made most of my uh, professional friends at the start, and so those are the writers I still, years later, hang out with mostly. No, so it, uh, that's a long career in audio, then. So you must really like it. I do. Well, it's it. It initially it was a good fit for me as a um, a side to my stage career, and then you mm-hmm. know, as other aspects of my life changed, it was just a better fit for a woman with a home and a family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and place you'd like to go back to at night and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Plus, I mean, the nice thing about audio too, it's um, it's kind of like writing. You can, you don't have to put on makeup. You can show up in your sweats. <laughs> I I'm it's, wearing it's, sequins now. I don't know about you, Laura. But oh, really? You know, <laughs> can I pour you a Manhattan or offer mm-hmm. some caviar and toast points? Well, it might spoil my manicure stuff. So no. <laughs> <laughs> we comport ourselves very graciously here. I was um, I was at some place where I put on nice clothing and went, oh, we should have told you, poor Laura, you could have worn jeans. I'm like, really? If I can't wear my pajamas, the rest doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mostly just work in my jammies. And they were like, okay, never mind. So, 
the difference between denim and corduroy is irrelevant when you're used to sort of not even having to put on a bra to go to work, you know. <laughs> Exactement. So are you yourself Lithuanian because... <laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, I had to um, ask someone Lithuanian to um, tell me, once I had used those Lithuanian names in um, Vampirazzi, said, okay, I never thought I'd need to ask, but how do I pronounce these? The actors are going to need to know. No, <laughs> absolutely no. No Lithuanian background. The Resnicks came from Russia. Um, no, it was just when I was writing Disappearing Nightly um, and, and just kind of, you know, writing away. And at some point, Max, Max uh, early on, he asks Esther, or are you Lithuanian? And it made me laugh. I had no idea what he said it, but I thought, that's weird. And I, I, uh, I kept it in. And when I was sort of going over the final draft of the book, it made me laugh again. So I thought, okay, I'll keep it in. And I have no idea what it is, but it's kind of a, you know, screwball madcap book. It doesn't all have to make sense. And then uh, he asks it again in the next book. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. That's consistent. And by the third book, I realized, you know, I'm going to have to figure out what this Lithuanian thing is now that he keeps saying it. So in Vampirazzi is the book where we find out what Max's thing with Lithuanians is, which by then readers were asking too. But it Mm -hmm. just kind of popped in there. No idea where that came from. So um, tell me about... I'm really curious to hear about your relationship with Betsy Walheim, the mm-hmm. editor at DAW. I, I would imagine there's so much time in the process of your creation that you are alone with your own thoughts and your own self-editor, um, you know, giving yourself feedback, taking this fork, not that. And just mm-hmm. from the little bits that I'd read, it sounded as though Betsy were like this fabulous partner. And, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a writer, you do spend an awful lot of time alone, and it's why, or related to, you know, so many writers are very squirrely and odd and um, often somewhat lacking in social skills, or you get us out with people and we've been alone so long, we just start babbling and and should be wearing one of those signs that say, help, I'm talking, and I can't seem to stop. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's an awful lot of alone time, and I also, I think I do more alone than a lot of writers, because there are a lot of writers who, they maybe have a very... um, um, engaged relationship with their editor where they, uh, they call them or talk to them about the story or they show them drafts. And then there are a lot of people who have a really engaged relationship with either a writing partner or a spouse or something, show them drafts, discuss the story, or have a critique partner or something. I started writing. I was very young and living in Sicily where hardly anyone even spoke English in southern Italy, and I didn't have a phone or any connection with the U.S., and that was where I started writing. So I was like, I learned to write entirely by myself with virtually, you know, no feedback or discussion loop or anything. Um, and so that's still very much how I, I tend to work. Like I get down the very best book or work that I can and it's done and then I show it to an editor. So I cut out a lot of that process. And I think sometimes to some people's frustration, like they might like to know what I'm doing when I'm off by myself for nine months and I don't tell them. Hmm. But uh, the way this came about was uh, there had actually previously been a publishing arrangement. Disappearing Nightly first came out from another publisher and um, they were shutting down their program and it didn't work out. So I had this orphan series I walked away with. The first book was done and published and I was hoping to find a new home for it and I knew Betsy slightly because we were both in the genre and the main thing we had in common we knew a lot of people in common but um, we're both second generation 
Her father was um, Don Wolheim, who was sort of one of the the founding names in American science fiction, and he founded the company, D-A-W, stands for Donald A. Wolheim. So Betsy grew up in the genre and among all these sort of giants of the genre, and my father is Mike Resnick, who is a very well-known science fiction writer. He's got like a legendary 37 Hugo Award nominations, of which he's won five. It's the big award in science fiction. He and Wolheim knew each other. Um, They both knew you know, Asimov and Heinlein and all these others. So we both kind of grew up in that that slightly fishbowl atmosphere of everyone in the science fiction community has known you since you were a child, Mm. which was why I didn't get into science fiction. I went into romance instead initially. Um, And so that kind of has given us a bond that we know a lot about what that's like. We know about a lot about how in this community, um, you know, the the lifelong relationships that you have and a lot of what the old friendships and quarrels are and how to protect your family privacy Mm. when everybody knows your family. It's not like you can, you know, bitch at a business lunch. Oh, God, my mother called and drove me crazy when everybody there might know who your mother is and perhaps have seen her recently. So that kind of really gives us a, a bond that not tons of people in the business share. And so I took the series to Betsy and she read it, and she just immediately got it. Like, as soon as I talked to her, I could tell she could tell what I was trying to do because um, humor, I think it's become a little bit more popular in the last 10 years in the fantasy genre, but it, it wasn't um, just a given. Like, you you know, it's the sort of thing where you tell people, they're like, well, tell me, what, what's your next book? And you say, Doppelgangster. And they say, what? Mm-hmm. Doppelgangster. Mm-hmm. What? Doppelgangster. And then they give you this really pitying look. <laughs> And with this series, you're really looking for the person to whom you say doppelgangster or vampirazzi, and they go, <laughs> and they get it. And that was kind of her reaction to all of it. She got what I was doing, and she kind of got who Esther was and who Max was and who Lopez was. And, um, you know, when we would talk about, like, where the series was going, because you have one book and you're trying to picture, you know, if you're going to do, like, 10 or 15 books, where did these people go? And she was really on board with that and could already kind of see where this was going and so it's just a really um a good fit and then she was very committed to the series um you know just started one after another contracting the books and um part of an area where we had some collaboration really which is always good when you and an editor are on the same page and even someone like me who works really very much in isolation it's it's definitely good to have input from because you you know because you get so close to the work you don't see it that well yourself and um as you'll see toward the end of the second book we find out there's more to lopez than meets the eye there's something strange about him and that was very largely betsy's idea she just felt she liked the character but just felt something was missing and we argued about it for a while because it wasn't like she said oh there should be something a little strange about him she you know she sort of went more in the direction of he should he or should have you know be some somehow more mystical or supernatural and i was like no we only have a supernatural character that's max and we we argued for a while and we kind of came to an agreement that i think is better than what she suggested, and it's definitely better than what I was first writing. So it's kind of um, the best of both of us to come up with an idea of how to make this series a little more interesting. Yeah. And I, I know from when Bessie has talked about editing, that's what she likes best. She is very much not a micromanager. Like, I don't think she has ever, and I've done seven books for her now, 
I don't think she has ever told me, you know, how to phrase something or how to pace a scene. She really likes to talk in a much more in-depth way about what the story is like, what the characters are like, what the overall feel is, and how each character contributes to it. She kind of likes to um, work inside the mode of story consultant instead of, you know, someone who's micromanaging, um, you know, don't say they went up, say they ascended, which some editors is what they're like. So it's a, it's, for me, it's been a really good relationship. Cool. Yeah, so I want to hear more about um, your researches into cover art, because when the series had a false start with another publisher, wasn't cover art part of it? And could you speak to that and and, and what you've learned and uncovered and and discovered and believe to be true about cover art? Because, uh, you know, we all think we're too deep to be like, oh, yes, of course, you can't judge a book by its cover. And yet we do. We all do. We all do. I, as it happens, right before you called, I was answering an email from an editor named Denise Little, who um, I have worked with on many projects and am doing so again. Um, mostly Now I mostly do short fiction with her. I, I did one novel with her when I was a romance writer. Denise started out actually in book sales for, for a while. She was a bookseller. She eventually became the mass market head buyer for the Barnes & Noble B. Dalton book chain, a national buyer. Denise knows had more knowledge of than, than most people I've ever met about what sells a book and how books sell and how readers choose them and how books move, you know, sort of through the system from publisher to readers. Um, and Denise always told me from, from when we were both much younger, uh, next to word of mouth, the cover is the most important tool for selling your book. So it made me very, very interested in the process, and I learned a lot about it. Um, I wrote a lot about it years ago. I would do articles about it, which would give me an excuse to call art departments and art directors and designers and artists and you know, pick their brains and learn as much as I could from them. And that kind of got me very interested in the cover process and in wanting to be more hands-on to ensure that I get good book covers. And some publishers are very open to including the writer, some publishers are um, not open to it, and some publishers act like you've just suggested they serve you blood from the skull of a puppy when you say, <laughs> I'd like to be involved in the process. Uh, so another thing that I really loved about going on board with Daw, and Daw Books, I should say, among writers I knew already had a very good reputation, so I was very eager to find the right project to work with Daw on and was really happy when um, Betsy acquired the series. And one thing I liked right on was it wasn't just that Daw was willing to accommodate me if I insisted on being involved. Daw was um, very eager to involve me and, you know, essentially invited me to be involved. We started out by talking about who would be the right artist for this. And I knew it was another sign that I was really at the right place when I came up with a short list of four people Dan DeSantos, who is the cover artist for the series, he was at the top of my list. And I called Betsy and I said, okay, I have a short list. And I was about to tell her who the first person is on it. And she said, well, I hope you're going to be pleased. But the first person on my list was Dan DeSantos. And I just called him and he's going to do it. He's a, a fantastic artist. And that's a pretty widespread opinion. He's been up for any number of awards. He's very, very heavily booked for illustration. And what I thought about DeSantos is he has this great combination of technical skill and imagination and sexiness and humor. Mm. 
And what he said to me at one point when we were working on one of the covers for the book, he said, you know, the, the trick of the Esther Diamond covers is you have to kind of get that right three-way tension of um, menace, sexiness, and humor into one image. Yeah. And he's, he nailed it. That is exactly what each cover needs, and that's exactly what he knows how to do. And the way it typically works is um, he'll either read the manuscript or if I'm running really far behind, which, alas, I am often running really far behind, uh, I usually work from a detailed outline, so I'll send that. It'll be like eight or ten pages describing the book and the story. And I collect a lot of images for the artists since they're visual people, um, just lots of images that sort of are kind of an image version of the book, of the setting, the things Esther might be wearing, the um, things she might be encountering. I, I don't tell him what to do. I just I give him like a load of these images and the book outline. And um, Dan comes up with some sketches, and they're always, I'm always just, I always send him the book thinking, God, what will he do for this one? This one is going to be so hard to depict. And then he comes up with some wonderful image for like, oh, my God, I never thought of that, but that's it, that's it. And we'll usually pick from a selection of images, and um, Betsy and Sheila Gilbert, who is her co-publisher, they'll discuss it with each other and with me. And sometimes we'll say, you know, well, I like this aspect of the sketch, this one sketch, but I like, you know, that aspect of that sketch. And we try to come up with a consensus among us she talks to Dan, and then he kind of runs with that, and he comes up with his painting from there. And after we get the final art, there might be some sort of tweak. We look at it in terms of is it is it the right energy for the for the book? Um, like in the cover of Amparazzi, where she's really trying to keep that door shut as all these things are trying to pour through the stage door. I think in the final revision we said. Um, uh, you know, she needs to look like she's really trying to keep that door shut. She looks a little too passive. And so he just, with a couple of touches, uh, made that change, and it just gave it all the energy that it needed. So we try to make them the changes more conceptual. Right. And um, that's it. And Dan, very often, um, he even does, which is not nor uh, typical, he'll do some of the design elements, too. He likes to play with the way the title looks or something like that. And that's how we go to it. And what you're really looking for in the cover is um, your cover is not, you know, necessarily supposed to be an accurate depiction of the story. It's supposed to be an accurate advertisement for your book. So you're really looking for um, the messaging of does the cover convey the genre of the book? Does it convey the tone of the book? And that's why for these, you know, to convey that it's, menacing and sexy and funny and that it's fantasy, th these are the things it's got to convey. What didn't go well with the first publisher was this oh, is kind yeah. of a funny story. They were not a fantasy publisher. They were Harlequin. It was a big romance house. They were trying to start a fantasy program. And I think for a few books it went well, but it, it didn't work well for me. And I remember I wanted to be involved in the cover process, and they absolutely wouldn't hear of it, which I thought was not a good sign. <sighs> and then they um, came up with a cover that uh, the editor called me, and she was the senior editor of the program, and she said, okay, there is a cover, but it's so bad, I'm not going to show it to you. We're going to go back to the drawing board. I thought, well, okay, I'm glad they're redoing it if it's that bad. It's a little alarming that it's that bad, but okay, they're redoing it. So the art department comes with another one, and she calls me, and she says, okay, this time it's so bad, they're not even going to let me see it. <laughs> and I thought, this is not going in the right direction, is it? 
And they did a third one, and she showed it to me, and it was so bad. I just sat at home and cried, and I thought, well, this is going to kill my series. It's so bad. Mm -hmm. And I knew, you know, there's only a certain amount of money they have. The resources aren't infinite. They weren't going to do a fourth cover. This third cover was it. And a couple of years later, after that deal fell apart, I took this cover with me to a panel discussion I was doing at a convention on um, cover art, what works, what doesn't, what's bad, what's good. And as I've just said, you know, things you've got to convey with your cover, what's the genre, what's the tone, um, uh, uh, those things. Well, I held up this cover in the audience, uh, you know, saying, let's look at an example of covers that work and don't work. And if you can tell the genre and the tone, you know, okay, it's starting to work. So I held up this cover, which was supposed to be for Esther Diamond, right? We said urban fantasy, menacing, sexy, funny. I held it up, and I think that the two, um, the, the audience sort of voted, and the two consensus uh, views they came to on the cover, one, it might be a 1970s uh, glitz and glam novel with the Sidney Sheldon sort. <laughs> which is not at all an Esther Diamond novel. And the other one was, it might be some sort of biography about a hooker. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the cover be. of Disappearing Nightly. <laughs> right. So that was an example of why mm. that relationship, just one example of why that relationship was really doomed and never going to work, because that's mm. how they were packaging the book. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, see, mm. it's, it's yeah. all in the journey, and... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that that part of the journey is ultimately Over. what brought us here to this day. <laughs> the awesome yeah. that we have now. This is so good. Yeah, that that really was going to be a one book series if I had stayed with that publisher. Right. So, so do you get to like travel as part of your research? Did you go to New Orleans to get into voodoo? Or what I mostly do for research is I, I do go to New York. Um, and I, I actually have a friend who, um, an old school friend who I've known almost all my life, we're very close, she'll put up with anything. Because when you're like on a research trip in New York in January, you can lose your temper sometimes. And this is somebody who, you know, I can go, rah, 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 to, and she's like, yeah, whatever, Laura. So, so we, she goes on my research trips with me. And we have a really good, we actually have a really good time. But um, they tend to be really packed because, you know, New York's so expensive. And if you're sort of researching two books at once, and you can only afford like five days in New York. You're sort of going from 7 a.m. to 11 at night, mm. and it's all a lot of fun, but it can get a little tiring. And I'll um, like research the trip pretty extensively before I go, and I'll pick out a whole bunch of like what specifically are we going to do. And and sometimes it's something really fun. Like we went up to Chinatown for Chinese New Year to research the misfortune cookie, mm. and we went on. Oh, like we went on a private food tour of Chinatown. Betsy Wohan came with us. So it was me, my friend, and Betsy. And this wonderful guide, Susan um, Rosenblum, I think has gotten out of the guiding business now, but we just spent like three hours eating our way through Chinatown, not in restaurants, but in like, um, we went to like a, a family-owned tofu factory in the middle of Chinatown and the first egg roll house in Chinatown and um, some kind of little candy store in Chinatown where I accidentally ate dried cuttlefish. And that is not an experience I recommend to anyone. Wow. Uh, we went to a butcher and a fishmonger. At one point, she forced us on a street corner. This woman forced us to taste durian, which is also something I don't recommend. It actually smells like sewage. <laughs> <laughs> and she kept saying, but it'll taste okay. I think we all spat it out in the middle of the street. Um, we've done, like, you know, mob tours of Little Italy with the Lower East Side Historical Society. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so lots of fun stuff. Very often we're there in the off-season, so on some of these walking tours, my friend will turn to me. She's like, we're going inside. I can't feel my feet. But uh, but for the most part, we, we have a really good time. Um, so, yeah, but I don't tend to actually go anywhere else. There's a, In fact, there's an upcoming book where I think Esther will go to Paris first time she leaves New York. But, alas, I don't really have the time and the... Uh, what is it, $1,400 airfare to go over there just for a research trip. But I've oh, been there before. Tax write yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> it would be nice, but the kittens <laughs> need feeding. So. And I have been to Paris, so, but just not for this. But the, I do enjoy the research um, a lot. And then I read a lot of weird books. So, um, you know, if you come over to my library, it's full of things about, um, let me see, we have... The Science of Vampires, The Dead Travel Fast, Piercing the Darkness, Vampires in America. Um, that was like some of my research for Vampirazzi and lots of things about the occult and grimoires and um, alchemists, just odd stuff. Sounds like Xanax. Um, <laughs> yeah, to some extent it does sound like, you know, we, we share a library, Max and I. So just um, fun things, and, and very often just at the start I'll kind of pick a, a trope, I'll have an idea for, you know, like a different fantasy trope each novel. One is a vampire book, one's a zombie book, one's um, sort of a, a, a death curse book. Um, uh, the way I got the idea for Polterheist was I was driving across Ohio in the middle of December. It was really bleak, and I was listening to um, the Santa Land Diaries. And I was listening to it, and I'm thinking, man, this, this, uh, this thing sounds like the anteroom to hell. And then I thought, hey, what if it was really the anteroom to hell? And something from hell was trying to get in, and that was sort of the whole idea for Polterheist. So just, you know, different places. Well, I will say so, yeah, that those, those research trips to New York are entirely worthwhile because New York feels like an additional lead character in the, in the series. That's good to know because that, I mean, it's meant to be. It's meant to feel, you know, really um, textured, like, like not just a backdrop. So that is really good to know. Now, you, you talked about taking walking tours in New York. Are you still doing a sideline with walking tours yourself? I am, yeah. I kind of got into that recently. I had been really for many years, I've been as a visitor, a walking tour addict. Any city I go to, um, even just for fun, I go on a walking tour. That's really what I'm into. I don't, you know, I don't do bars particularly or um you know, clubbing or anything, I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to go on a walking tour. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, this uh, small group of guys, uh, history nerds and beer fanatics, they started a walking tour company here in Cincinnati. And I was like, oh, great. I went on all of their walking tours, got on their newsletter, and um, just loved their tours. And then a year ago, in their newsletter, they said, you know, by the way, we're looking to hire guides. If interested, please apply. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that would be so much fun to do as a part-time job. So I went down and applied. And the um, two skills you had to demonstrate, you had to be a good storyteller. Well, <laughs> and the other one was you had to be really loud because we do these, you know, outdoors and busy city streets. And I originally trained as an actress and a singer. So I can be loud for hours without a strain. Um, so those are the two things I showed him. I told him a story about vampires, and I projected. And uh, he hired me on the spot, and I've been doing it ever since. And I really, really enjoy it. I do... 
uh, one of the ghost tours, and I'm probably going to do more this year because those are really popular, and I have a natural affinity for the supernatural tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also do the underground tours where we uh, take people down into old, forgotten, long-lost uh, caverns under the city that were built in the 19th century for beer fermentation, basically. And it's like a whole secret world down there. So those are really fun to do as well. Do you find that uh, people ever connect the dots? Uh, do they do they do they learn who you are when they're on the walking tour and they say, "Oh my God, famous famous <laughs> author Laura Resnick is giving me a walking tour. I am the luckiest tourist Cincinnati has ever seen." That is exactly what happens. It happens every single time. <laughs> no, it never happens. What uh, actually? <laughs> One thing, you only give your first name on a tour, and uh, even if somebody was one of my readers, they only get my first name, and our faces, one of the nice things about being a writer is, um, unless you're Stephen King or someone, your face is never famous. I mean, you know, people could actually have read every word you write, and they'll meet you, and they wouldn't know if you only give your first name, because they don't know Mm -hmm. your face. So, I maintain my anonymity. And there was actually one day when a guide who is no longer with the company, um, but he knew what I did, um, he kind of made an announcement at the end of the tour. Oh, and by the way, go look for Laura Resnick's books and stuff. And afterwards, he's like, hey, was that cool? Was that cool that I did that? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, <laughs> no, not really. I kind of just keep two parts of my life separate. When I'm yes. out being a guide, I'm just a guide. I don't ever tell people I'm a writer. It just, it just makes it more fun. And I think when you're a guide, you really want the focus to be on what you're talking about and not on yourself. Does the walking tour sort of get out your yayas of the performance aspect of you must have enjoyed that if you pursued it and trained in it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I find it really does. And for years, it was not something I had missed that much just because writing is really hard. I got nothing left at the end of the day, frankly. Um, Yeah, but uh, it does really. And in fact, a number of the guides are people who like one guide, I think he's like a part time actor and I think another had trained for it and so on. um, One is um, he's a musician. So it. It does attract people interested in performance, and my boss always says, um, you know, first and foremost, you're an entertainer. You are there to keep people entertained for two hours and amused. Our script should be historically accurate, Lord. Don't make shit up. But on that basis and on the basis of your background reading, the most important thing is not to bore people to death with a lecture about how beer ferments. It's to keep these people really engaged for two hours while you are talking about the history of the city and keeping people engaged. And so we do, uh, we do some shtick and we do jokes and, um, you know, they kind of give you the basic historical script and information and then every guide puts their own personal spin on it. And when I got there, I found, because the company had been founded by young men who are beer enthusiasts, there were jokes that were common in the company that I'm like, guys, that does not work for me. Like one of them was, um, we're talking about beer consumption. And um, Cincinnatians used to drink two and a half times the national average of beer. We would drink 40 gallons of beer for every man, woman, and child. And this, and this historical speech about beer consumption kind of culminates to something like, now, you know, I only have half a liver left, so it's up to the rest of you people to go out there and drink your fair share. And I'm like, okay, when a 27-year-old guy does it, that's kind of funny. When a woman of my age does it, people are like, oh, dear God, that's weird. You know? <laughs> right. I have a meeting you should come to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
So I, I swapped out some of the guys had a number of jokes that they had just built into the routine over the years when they were training me. I'm like, that one won't work for me. I'm not doing that. They're like, okay, you know, come up with your own. That's fine. Now, do, do you share the civic-minded gene of, of Esther Diamond? Because that does seem to be what propels her into uh, various circumstances is uh, her general do-goodery. Well, I think that the ideal Laura Resnick that I imagine who exercises daily and eats healthily and gets up early, that person probably shares Esther's civic-mindedness. The real Laura Resnick sleeps late, lies on the couch, eats brownies, and is like, oh, let someone else go save the world. I'll just write about it. Oh, but you saved the kittens, Laura, and that's a very, very important (laughs) job. I do do that. It helps that they're extremely cute. That that uh, that makes it easier. Yeah. So when uh, when your researches bring you to the uh, greater D.C. area, we should get you in the studio to record one of the parts in your book. I would love that. I would actually love to just witness production for a day and see how it's done. I listening. I've always been really fascinated, as I said, by radio plays. I have a huge BBC library of radio plays, and to kind of witness how you guys uh, do the recording and how some of the sound comes into it, I would I would enjoy that so much. Just even just sitting as the audience and seeing the process of how you do all this, it, it really interests me. I and I actually I went to college in D.C., so I still have some friends in the area. That would be wonderful. Actually, it would also it would be really I should say it would be really fun to read a part in one of my own. That would be great fun too. I hadn't even thought of that. I was like, oh, I'd love to go and sit and watch, but that would be fun too. Keep up the good work, because I'm I I am known for my honesty. So I'm a Midwesterner, so I'm I'm polite. If I didn't like it, I would still say something polite, like you know, oh, I can tell you're working very hard or something like that. <laughs> but in fact, I'm actually just really, really enjoying it. I'm so pleased with the way the the Disappearing Nightly came out in the audio production. I I, I really think it's fantastic. I'm going to go around and be a nuisance to all of my friends going, you guys should listen <laughs> to this. It's really good. I never try to make you read my books, but you should really listen to this. Well, I'm so glad we had the podcast conversation during our salad days in the early blush of our relationship. <laughs> Before it all turned sour and violent. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I will also look forward to hearing Doppelgangster. Now that, now that I'm kind of halfway through Disappearing Night, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to hear the next one. So which is what we hope the uh, customers will think, too. Precisely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and thank you for sharing your stories with us, both in this podcast conversation and in the novels, because they're all awesome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for saying they're awesome, because, like every other writer, I'm just desperate for praise. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, we love you, we love you. It's not enough! (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Colleen. Certainly. Thanks again. Mm Bye-bye. Bye. We would like to thank Laura Resnick for taking the time to talk to us. The first two books of the series, Disappearing Nightly and Doppelgangster, are now available. The third book, Unsympathetic Magic, will be released in the coming weeks. For more information on how to purchase our graphic audio titles, please call us at 1-800-670-5220 or visit us on the web at www.graphicaudio.net and www.graphicaudiointernational.net where you can purchase our titles in audio CD format or in one of our download formats, MP3, M4B, and FLAC. And you can listen to your downloads anytime, anywhere 
with our free Graphic Audio Access app, available for Apple and Android devices. Make sure you sign up for our e-newsletter, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter.